Well, welcome um, to this panel. I'm sure there will be people trickling in. Um, there will be, first I want to say, there will be evaluation forms being passed out. And please, please, please uh, fill those out. Um, and for the next session and for any other session for which you haven't, have not yet filled out your evaluation form, get extras. Please fill them out. We do look at them. We do value your input. It helps us make this conference um, better and improved and helps inform the speakers. It informs um, those of us uh, planning the conference. So please, they are important. Thank you for your time. The PSA is done. So this is going to be a, uh, a panel discussion. I'm, it's about you. There's no separate time for questions. This is your time to... Um, interrupt and ask questions. I'm going to ask uh, Phil Fisher and Tina Slusher and Meredith Hawkins. Uh, perhaps you've already been to some of their sessions already. Perhaps not. I'm going to have them do a brief introduction of themselves and a brief introduction of how they've been doing research on the field. And then I'll start asking a couple of questions. And then it's up to you to come up with your own questions about how we can engage either academic research or small um, internal <coughs> informative research questions. It's, it's whatever you have about maybe you're a student looking to get involved, maybe you've been on the field, uh, wherever you're coming from, how we can engage um, field mission work more on research. And there's a variety of ways to think about that, not just doing academic research for publication. Um, but these guys know what they're talking about. They have a bunch of tools that you can ask them. You really do. Believe me. Believe it or not, yeah. you know what you're talking about. Because I said so. So, um, my name is Catherine Welch, and I'm, I'm one of these field missionaries that needs to learn from these guys about how to do research. So, I'm going to uh, pick on these guys um, to give me some answers this morning. So, Phil, you have a microphone. Please um, <laughs> give a brief introduction about what, what, what research looks like for you. Questions. I think the key to doing good research is to have good questions, to come up with questions, and then the questions will lead to the research. It helps if you're passionate about the questions, it helps if you can answer them, and it helps if they're important to the world. When I finished my pediatric residency in the States, I headed overseas, spent six years in the middle of Africa in what was then called Zaire, and I had a lot of questions coming from clinical practice. One of them was because we saw newborns that had fevers, and I knew how to take care of bacterial infections and possible bacterial infections, and the nurses said, no, this one has malaria. And I said, no, the books say that there's no malaria in newborns. It's exceedingly rare, was the published literature at the time. And so we had these discussions, and so we had a question. Is this malaria or not? So we did malaria smears on 300 kids. We found out that 12% of them did have malaria. Those that had malaria were more likely to die. This mattered. Um, now, in the 20 years since then, the rest of the world has learned a little bit. Textbooks have been changed to no longer say that congenital malaria is rare, and there's been an increasing emphasis on dealing with malaria in pregnancy and newborns. 
when I left the left Africa after six years, was evacuated, ended up sensing God wanted us to stay in the States, I heard from a friend that was then working in West Africa. He and I had been together in training. And he said, there are lots of kids around here with crooked legs, and I think they've got rickets. But rickets is from vitamin D deficiency, and these kids are playing in the sunshine all the time, and they should have lots of vitamin D. So we said, hmm, I don't understand that either. Um, so we did some studies. We found out they had normal vitamin D levels, but they had inadequate calcium intake. And when they fed, we gave them more calcium, then they didn't have rickets, and their rickets got better. That spread to some studies in Bangladesh and in China. And it continued, and it's been productive in several directions. There have been about 30 papers published in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine about rickets being due to calcium. And we sent people around, got a team involved in a bunch of countries. I was talking to a missionary nurse in Bangladesh and said, sorry to bother you with those medical students that came to work on the rickets thing. I appreciate all the time you put into this. And she said, no, it was fantastic. Before we could get rickets better, we had lots of people with rickets that would just stay in the village and be crippled for their lives. Uh, But now that people know they can get help for their rickets, and we send our physical therapists out to villages that otherwise we wouldn't have contact with to follow up on the kids, and the physical therapists happen to be evangelists at the same time. Um, She said whole villages have been open to the gospel that hadn't been open before because of doing research. So I think research is important. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I also think research is important, and I have absolutely learned my lessons the hard way. I was a general pediatrician in, in uh, rural eastern Kentucky, where I'm sure I would still be if it weren't for Africa, and uh, went to cover for my co-residency partner for his language school, his language study in Nigeria at a small mission hospital there. And I saw kids there dying from uh, jaundice and uh, tetanus. And I said to myself, hmm, tetanus will go away. And it has gone way down, but not away. And, uh, but jaundice, nobody seems to know what the problem is. And that led to going, leaving private practice, going back and doing fellowship and all things uh, in pediatric critical care. And uh, starting to do research to try to uh, figure out why we were having so much jaundice and what we could do to treat it practically. And uh, for me, it's been a long path, and, and God's been good. Uh, but we we now have I now have two uh, funded grants looking at that problem, and it's an exciting time, and it's exciting to see how uh, God's using that to open up the doors to share with uh, young Muslim physicians and others, as well as, you know, the moms and the little kids, of course, I get to, I love them, too. Uh, and, and I really have learned a lot of this the hard way, but God's been good in that process, and uh, I can answer lots of questions about how not to do things, and hopefully a few on how to do things. I think very important are your mentors uh, on both sides of the waters and and as I think Phil touched on uh, it's really important that you engage your your colleagues from uh, those parts of the world like one of my I couldn't do what I'm doing right now if I didn't have a wonderful Christian Nigerian co-PI who's brilliant and, and on the ground and understands the culture and, and is able to translate and 
pick up the pieces when I make cultural mistakes, etc., etc. And I think that's really important that it be their problem being something that they also not just not just you, but they also identify as something they need and is something they want to work on. And that's what's happened with the jaundice research. And it's an exciting time because people are beginning to understand that it really does kill babies and we do need to do something about it. So I'm just going to show you a couple of pictures. Uh, this is uh, <coughs> a picture of three young people that we encountered in the wards of the hospital. Wait, in Meredith, just explain it. Where, where, what, um, what, are you, what are you doing? Yeah, oh, just get, yes, so, all right. Well, as, as Catherine said, my name is Meredith Hawkins. I'm a diabetes researcher at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. And our travels had taken us to do okay. educational program in, in uh, Malago Hospital, big uh, hospital affiliated with the McMain Medical School in Uganda. And what we discovered at that point was that there were a lot of patients who had a, a type of diabetes that didn't look like type 1 or type 2. They were very young, thin. They didn't appear to have type 1 because they were not ketosis prone. Actually, they could live without insulin. But in fact, if anything, insulin probably killed them. When, because they didn't have a way of self-monitoring, they didn't have enough food. So we wandered in there. I don't know how well you can see these pictures. Young woman on the right uh, died a month after that picture was taken. She turned out to be an end-stage renal disease. Uh, there's only a few people in Uganda will be able to afford dialysis, and she was not one of them. She was having very severe retrosternal chest pain related to reflux when we met her, so she was in pain all the time. On the left, a young boy who was... Uh, had had symptoms for about three years of, of losing weight, a lot of urine. His widowed mother couldn't afford to take him to the hospital, so we ultimately diagnosed him with diabetes. He did get insulin and supplies. He was much more fortunate than a lot of these children. I uh, died a few months later, we believe, from low blood sugar in the middle of the night. And the boy at the bottom was an orphan who would sell his insulin for food for his grandmother and then would come in critically ill. He also had TB. And unfortunately, on the last admission, the nurse who knew him well, who we'd given money for his care, didn't happen to be there. And for lack of $10, he was turned away and died. So we, were, we have been so incredibly moved by the plight of these young people who have something different from type 1 and type 2, something very poorly described, very poorly understood, called malnutrition diabetes. We were trying to get a handle on this, and the experts in Uganda knew nothing about it. It seems that, in fact, people know very little about it. In the middle of all of this, this was several years ago that we were dealing with this and wondering how to teach about its management. And at that point, this is the, the supernatural part of the story, and this type of thing doesn't usually happen to me, but I had a very striking dream. I was in a small airfield where small planes taking off and landing every few minutes, and there's a voiceover saying, this is Christian Medical College in Valor, India, where people come and go from all over the world. So that was the dream, very simple. Uh, but I woke up out of that dream with a pretty clear sense. I guess I'm supposed to be going there. I, I, I really, uh, I, I wouldn't say that that's something that usually happens to me, but it was pretty vivid. And so I decided I would do everything I could to get there. Well, I, I did manage to get through to the chief of the hospital through some of our mission connections here. And he said, by all means, come. I'll copy the head of endocrinology. You're very welcome. Well, months went by. I didn't hear back. Kept emailing the head of endocrinology. No reply. Our, the Indian Health Minister came to visit. Uh, I kept saying, I kept emailing more. The Indian Health Minister visited our medical school. He agreed. It would be great for me to go there. Uh, blah, blah, blah. No answer. 
So finally, um, it, a colleague of mine who was at Cornell, which is the, the medical school that Ida Scudder had graduated from, Ida Scudder, the mythical uh, figure who had founded CMC back in 1900. So, so through my through my Cornell connection, the next morning we had an answer: come. So. We arrived at Christian Medical College in Valor, this incredible place, almost 3,000 inpatient beds. Uh, they now have about 10,000 outpatient visits daily. It's just this sprawling, incredible place with incredible outreach and, and, and uh, clinics where they care for the poor out in the rural areas and so on. And so this represented for us the possibility of sophisticated research going on at a place where they still served a lot of very poor patients. So these are the types of uh, research that we've been able to do with them. Up on the upper right is something that we would otherwise do in the U.S., something called a clamp study, where we would fuse in a lot of different hormones and label glucose and so on, can measure metabolism. We can do that also with other uh, other aspects of metabolism, can be measured by indirect calorimetry, where they breathe into that hood, and we can measure protein and, and uh, and lipid and carbohydrate metabolism, we can put them into that big machine, and we can actually uh, the MR where we can where we can monitor how much lipid there is in their muscle and fat, and how much trouble that can be causing them, and how how all of those things can be leading to diabetes. So really trying to get a handle on why do these very thin people paradoxically get diabetes? But the the goal ultimately of trying to shed some light on this, trying to figure out what are some treatments other than the lethal insulin treatments that they're currently getting. So what are ways of managing them with oral medications, with pills, with, with diet, which is the most appropriate way. And this partnership, my main partner there, Nihal Thomas on the far right, is now uh, the Dean of Research at CMC. That's very convenient for us. Uh, we've been able to take this on the road to various places, including advocating to congressional staff about the need for more funding for research of this condition. Meanwhile, we just keep plodding along on the ground over there, uh, working hard to try to figure out what this is all about. Great. Thank you. Um, any questions so far? Anything come up um, for any of our panelists? Okay. If not, I've got a few. I'll be just holding. Um, can you... Can you comment on, on some of the um, particular... Uh, okay. So what I want to hit on, you've, you've described some of your work. Apart from doing research through an academic institution or from your um, observation on the field, are, are there other ways that you can see where some partners might be able to get involved or provide some, some toolkits or... You know, uh, Phil, you mentioned some questions or, um, you know, to ask questions. Or are there other ways, like, if you have an idea, um, are there any toolkits? Or are there other other areas that you can see, apart from um, being able to do work through an academic institution? Um, maybe you've seen some some um, some of your, your uh, national partners or have seen some other ideas come up that have been stimulated through the work that you're doing? I think the key is to work through relationships. It's working through individual people, whether they're in an academic institution or not. But it's got to be a team. It's got to be working together. Patient care doesn't just involve one care provider. Research requires even a bigger village to be able to work with people. So I think a key is to be able to work with people to get the answers you need. 
Uh, it helps, though, if there's enough organization and structure to do a project well, so not only do you learn answers that will help you think you know what you're doing in your area, but if it's worthwhile to do, it's probably worthwhile to learn something that can be shared with other people. So that implies it's going to be done in a way that's understandable and reproducible and generalizable, or you can understand what the limitations to it are. And so that often does involve partnering with somebody with some academic background, whether they're at an institution or not. In developing countries, lots of the mission hospitals and other significant places will have some training program. Oftentimes, those training programs for nurses or whoever are going to require that people do some sort of a research project or a thesis. And those are great ways to do little projects, which can turn into useful research to learn things that can be spread beyond just the local group farther. In terms of toolkits to find out what to do, I think it's going to come more through the individuals because you might be doing epidemiology or a clinical trial or something else, and there'll be different toolkits that are available. The Internet's great for things, but the key is going to be finding the right people to collaborate with to get the ideas and the skills. I don't know statistics, but having somebody that does know statistics involved is great. So I think people is the answer. Yeah, I agree. And in the last study uh, that we just did in Nigeria with G6PD deficiency, that has been a long-term question of my uh, uh, my national partner, Dr. Battero, and we took his interest in that. And a resident, he's actually doing a residency in Nigeria, and uh, but is Nigerian. I mean, doing a residency in Minnesota, but he's Nigerian by birth and is interested in hematology, pediatric hematology. So uh, tuned in uh, with the help of Daniel and one of the hematologists, uh, developed a G6PD project that then involved their uh, their laboratory scientist, who is a wonderful gal who wants to be encouraged, etc. But we brought all those people together to do a, re a, a small but quality research project that answered the question, that, that the Nigerians really wanted to know. And there's a room to build on that and, and again with those relationships to, to go further. And that one wasn't funded but will be published and uh, et cetera. And so again, relationships and answering questions that they want answered. But I, again, I'm, I think it's more about that than actual toolkits. One interesting thing about teaching at the medical mission meetings, which are in Kenya and in Thailand, so when we go to the Kenya meeting, we have people coming from all around sub-Saharan Africa, and they attend the sessions on diabetes management in resource-poor areas, and I always think I'm, I'm uh, up to date by bringing along the IDF guidelines for sub-Saharan Africa, that's International Diabetes Federation, so I think, wow, I've got, all right, I did my homework, I brought these guidelines for sub-Saharan Africa, and then I'm told immediately, of course, that these guidelines are very inappropriate for the real world in sub-Saharan Africa. They're, 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 they're written by these very fortunate uh, Oxford-educated leaders of their, of, their, of their countries in Africa who have practices that involve the elite, and they have 150-page guidelines with all these medications that, that most of us would maybe be able to afford. So, so then all of a sudden, the people from the Kajabi and Tenwick and so on are saying, uh, these are not appropriate. What what would be appropriate? Whereupon I tell them, uh, I cannot answer that without research, and it's the type of research that really should be done on the ground over there, where they could actually study the outcomes of patients, uh, simplifying the guidelines, coming up with new guidelines, and then testing them, etc. So that so there's enormous enormous 
a need for research of that sort that needs to get done over there. Oh, yes, we have a question. Yeah. Um, we were talking about this earlier. What do you, what do you when, you, when you're doing something internationally, what do you do as far as uh, getting permission to, to have people participate? Because oftentimes they're illiterate, but they don't know the language, and they, how do you explain to them what you're doing and, and just what kind of ethics are involved there? Yeah, you, you do need, and, and actually there's a good article, although I'm now blocking on the name, uh, about that, just that question, informed consent in, uh, in the international setting. And I forget the name of it, but I'm blocking on it. But you do still need uh, uh, ethics committee approval, both uh, on the ground and if you have U.S. connections, the U.S. based as well. But as it points out in this article, that, that consent needs to be culturally appropriate and understandable, or it's really not informed consent. And I deal with that a lot because, you know, the U.S. requires a 5 to 12 page consent uh, that, that doesn't make any sense at all to the people <coughs> that are actually reading it. But sometimes, depending on the type of the study, like with my last study, they actually did let me do a mostly pictorial consent with some words. And, uh, uh, so you can work with your IRB to, to do that. Uh, but you do absolutely need uh, informed consent. Uh, it's a great question because it can lead to a lot of frustration. But yeah, I think we would all agree that you need informed consent. You need to have ethical or institutional report review board approval from all sites involved. So if you have a U.S. collaborator, Europeans, Africa, Asia, wherever, everybody should be involved, which takes a long time and leads to a hassle. Sam Porter, one of our medical students, talked about a very, very research yesterday in one of the other sessions. It took seven years from conception of study to people to do it to approvals from all the appropriate committees to get things done. Uh, so not only do you have to get all the official approvals, though, you have to get appropriate approvals in the area. In one African study, what it took was talking to the chief and getting the chief and everybody else to agree to take a kilogram of salt as their thank you for being involved. An Asian study, we gave people soap and mothers got skirts, material to make skirts. What's the appropriate remuneration for somebody's time and energy um, and how do we get people involved? I've had people come after me as the secret police checking to see what I was really doing with blood despite having all of the reviews and agreements and everybody agreeing. So questions can come up. Cultural issues will often be there, so you need, as you're doing the study, to make sure you've got a multicultural team involved. Sam mentioned in the study yesterday how people thought the blood was being taken from Cambodia to sell to the Vietnamese. Um, studies in Nigeria have been involved in people thought by taking their blood we were giving them AIDS or sterilizing them. Lots of rumors can go around. People from out of the culture by physical appearance are less likely to be successful in dealing with that, but it points to the need of having a community involved, not only for those official approvals, but also to make sure that all the people involved and all their neighbors understand what's going on and what's not going on, and they get encouraged and supported along the way. Do you have anything to add? Another question? Yeah. I, I got a question to kind of follow up with that, and it's kind of more of a global view. Know, is this organization, is this an opportunity where we could set up a clearinghouse 
you know, or have an advisory board, you know, for research, you know, uh, so that all medical mission research could be could be funneled through one organization, have a committee, you know, that would ask these questions and, and be kind of more an advisory to, along with, because if I look at, at here, you know, is there an opportunity where we could be having abstracts you know, here at this conference? You know, th those type of things to, to more bring research to the forefront and look at how this organization can help partner in, in research. So, can I clarify your sure. question? Um, and just also for the recording also. And your question was, is, is this organization have the bandwidth to be able to handle um, sort of questions about research and provide input, right? right? And what by this organization, you can you, you define the that? Missions. You mean the comp like medicalmissions.com or CMDA or any whatever would be decided upon. Okay. You know, and the, the the people who know this better than what I do. You know. Yeah, looking for some sort of uh, central. Right. I, I mean, I I look at for, for me, I've I've done a lot with ACC. So, you know, they, they, American College, American College Cardiology. Okay. So they have a lot of a big organization that you know, can, can be a clearinghouse and, and be looking at, you know, some, what are some quality outcome measures, you know, whether it be clinical, behavioral, economic, you know, so that we're all kind of on the same page on, on what is definable and what is considered you know, a, a good study and what it's not. Mm. Uh, yes, actually, I was wondering, Phil, your story of how that, uh, over the seven years, of how those connections came about through the CMD, did, did, would you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I love your idea, but I don't know if it's time for it yet. Uh, because on one hand, it helps if we have that because it adds structure to make sure things happen. On the other hand, it gives a lot of bureaucracy that might delay things. Those, so the specific very, very thing, Mary, is <coughs> some friends got together entirely. We said, wow, this is good. Who could do this? There are epidemiological issues. She's an epidemiologist. She's interested. It took years of finding somebody with the passion to actually make things happen and move it along. So I'm a little concerned if we go too early to your great idea, there'll be more people just lost in between. On the other hand, there are some people that don't get connected and need those connections to decide where to go. Um, so maybe we need both, because we need the individual that's going to do it. It's going to take individuals working together to make a team to make it happen. Um, how can an individual get connected? I guess some of the website things already happening, though, can be whatever you can post as your comment, and maybe somebody will pick up on. But it's really going to take making a connection. So I guess the real value in the group would be partly the structure to give ideas and input, but a lot of it's going to be just to make connections. So I don't know if we're ripe for that yet, even though it would be nice to have American College of Cardiology strength and say, here we go. I'm interested in other ideas. I think it's a great idea. I don't know if it's time for it. If for now we just need to say be in touch one on one, or which way to go. But I don't. What do other people think? Well, just the way I think the online presence of medicalmissions.com and and just the connections. And it really is about making those connections, requiring some initiative, but actually knowing, you know, who is doing what, where, 
and then taking the initiative to reach out uh, to that person and saying, hey, are you interested in this? Or maybe someone in that, um, you know, what happens, you know, at these international meetings in, in Kenya and, you know, having some people say, hey, I'm seeing this problem coming to you and what do you think about researching this idea? It's very much, yeah, I mean, I'm not disagreeing, but again, it's 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 sort of, it's a lot to think about handling something to, to organize something like that. But I think through a better way of connection, rather than seeing someone every two years at a meeting, knowing who's doing what where, and then taking the initiative, as you said, to make those individual connections. And then having then perhaps that growing more organically into something that works, or someone championing uh, the organization to make it happen. Um, might take that. Yes, question. Is this conference marketed to PhDs in the medical field? Uh, I don't know about marketing so much. Um, <coughs> it's it's not not. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not in. I'm not involved in that level of the organization. Most of the marketing for here is really word of mouth instead yeah. of marketing. But I've been in discussions actually in this room a couple of years ago about research. And there were some potential connections coming there, some with Cedarville, actually, in a place where there was an epidemiologist that wanted to do things. It looked like it would be really good, and I don't know what happened. I tried to get some people connected together. I don't know where that went. And that's part of the risk of a big organization. Is it going to be carried through? The organization could help make sure things happen. It could be that great things came from that, but I'm not actually sure. Clydette Powell, with all the resources and wonder of the USAID program, <laughs> billions of dollars. Yeah, it, it leads to what I wanted to say. One was a question and the other was a comment. The question was, is there, or what might be the role for MEI, because they have academic liaisons and ongoing relationships to play some kind of liaison linkage role in terms of you know, academic research in the center and promoting the local people, the local physicians, to be the first lead author on a paper, et cetera. That's, that's one question. And the other comment is yes. I mean, Phil, you've spoken really what I was going to say, and that USAID also has a research agenda, and another way of getting involved might be able to link up with our research programs in countries. Now, it tends to be tends to be more operational research, very sort of practical, programmatic, but occasionally they are looking at more, I won't say basic science areas, but in some instances they do more clinical trials. So we have specific mechanisms, funding mechanisms, maybe getting connected with those might facilitate where they've already done the IRB approval or informed consent, et cetera, because it's using U.S. funding. Just two, two thoughts. It could be as simple as just piggybacking on something like Wikipedia and going in and creating an area in Wikipedia for underdeveloped medical research and people just post their stuff. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm, it's one place you can find it. And it really wouldn't cost anything because Wikipedia is already there. But if people just start doing it and start going to it, it would it would blossom on its own and become a whole huge category within Wikipedia. 
I wonder if some of what Will Rogers is discussing with the medicalmissions.com website could do that, with some of the postings and connectedness. I haven't tried doing those sorts of things myself, but that would keep it within the similarly minded medical missions sort of community. Um, and it uses the Wikipedia sorts of tools and structures there. So that might be one way to do it. Another question over here. Yeah, more of an update uh, perspective. I think Bill, you're right. Uh, medicalmissions.com uh, is being tooled in such a way where those connections can be made. And actually, a couple of years ago, uh, the uh, strategic discussions that you went for the conference included things like uh, could we or should we have uh, research poster sessions here at this meeting? Not so much in terms of you know being uh, an IRB and an advisory council, those things, but more of just helping people see who's doing what out in the field. So you could find like-minded individuals. And that was before medicalmissions.com was even created. Uh, but some combination has been in discussion about you know, having on-the-ground annual poster session, which as you see the busyness of this place, that's that's another animal that they're trying to, you know, how do you fit that in and, and make it work? But that has been thought of. But then adding the opportunity to do that more electronically and even real-time uh, through the, uh, the website, I think, is a very strategic uh, opportunity that's being pursued. And having... A posters, you know, poster sessions or a- any kind of grouping like that can help uh, see new ideas yes. and yes. and stimulate our imagination about what we can do, what has been done, and also help link up people with more experience with people those with less experience and helping them get on the ground and, and avoiding pitfalls that some of us have learned the hard way. So that's an idea. Yes, question. Um, I was just wondering, do you guys have any comments on whether or not like the research actually gets to like a resource poor area? Like, because a lot of the research has to do with like treatment, like in a resource poor area. But then, like, does this high level research like get distributed to everyone so they have that information? Or can you guys just talk about those challenges and how you try to like make sure that everyone has access to the information you gain from the research? I guess. Yeah, I think that depends a lot on the individual researcher and how it's set up and what the project is. Uh, we're certainly trying hard to do that with the jaundice, and uh, we, we're developing a sunlight a filtered, uh, tested filtered sunlight phototherapy that can be done without electricity. And we, one of the ways we tried to make sure that was available was talking about it at the national. Uh, the Nigerian National Neonatal Meeting. And uh, so that helped disperse it to all regions of that country. And if it works well, we'll try to link up to make sure. But I think that's <coughs> the facts of the individual researchers uh, to, to help it get out there and get the word out there. Again, very important that what you're doing is important to them and can be used by them. There is a program run by the University of Iowa College of Library Science, and they've set up, it's called an e-grainery, and it's basically everything useful on the internet consolidated onto one massive hard drive, and they send these hard drives, sell them to universities in the third world, and all the material on there is free, donated by publishers, stuff that we would have to buy. It's just donated by the publishers. And they can put those on the server of the university so they don't have to go on the Internet and waste their bandwidth finding stuff around the world. They have access to this 
massive supply of medical information, you know, real basic stuff that, you know, how to, how to drill a well, how to, <coughs> how to do all the basic stuff, but it could be picking back onto that also. They love donations of, you know, if, we, if something does get set up to put it on their hard drive, it would get everywhere around the world. One of the big issues for research in the current decades is exactly what you raised. It's easy for research to not be applicable, or if it is applicable, not to be applied. But asking that question at the very beginning makes a difference. I can look at the things that each of us three happens to have been involved in, and I can see lives are changed because of it, things are implemented. I tried to take a pediatric, and I did take a pediatric endocrinology fellow to Bangladesh so he could see real rickets with real deformities. And there wasn't any. And I said, what happened to all the kids with real rickets? I said, we don't see them anymore. We learned from the last research studies, and so now we treat them right, and they're not getting rickets like that, and they get better when they do have it. So the key is to ask that question before any project. Is what we find out relevant and helpful, and will it be applied? In Nigeria, we had the first lady of the country involved in the rickets things going on. We've got high levels of the government involved with thiamine deficiency in Cambodia, working through existing systems, so whatever happens will be applied. So I would say keep asking that question like every week if you're involved in a research project to make sure it gets through. Yes. I just wondering if you guys could share some experiences about um, ways that you found funding for your projects. <laughs> well, uh, I started off very low level and with not much vision and did a lot of uh, talking to individual people and, and pulling it all from my own pocket and talking to companies about donated supplies and that worked well, but uh, uh, as I persisted, uh, there are organizations out there, and one of the sunlight phototherapy is actually being funded by the Thrasher Foundation, and that foundation and others like it will uh, sometimes take on projects like this. Thrasher is particularly uh, interested in low-middle-income countries, although they do do U.S. studies now. And so they're funding that at a real level that includes part of my salary support as well as my staff and uh, the supplies and equipment that we need. And my other study uh, is being funded by a, one of the R21, so smaller NIH studies, where we're trying to develop a community survey tool to tell the world how much jaundice there, severe jaundice there really is and how much death and disability there is. So there are ways that's where you really need mentors and help. Uh, but as I said earlier, God is good. And sometimes without those mentors, you still manage to get fairly far down the process. But there's people who are out there willing to help you. But there are ways both to get supplies and equipment and also to get actual funding. And companies have been really gracious, too to give me either at cost or free or low cost discounted lots. I mean, in this in this studies, the, the, the bilirubinometers are a fraction of what they really cost. The, the transcutaneous bilirubins were loaned to me to, to be used in the studies. And, and just lots of people have come alongside and uh, helped with things that made it possible. So a lot of the challenge is just getting the preliminary data that you need to go after funding. And so, so just like Tina, I think I was the major donor to begin with, and then use my own <laughs> use my own research funding from back home to fund fellows and, and materials and so on that we would send over. 
and that was going on for a while uh, in order that we can then become competitive for ideally for NIH funding which is now there's now a greater interest in, in uh, NIH funding of projects that are overseas yeah and there are so are lots of Gates grants that that some projects in low-middle income countries uh, qualify for and then I think Claudette mentioned USAID and funding through that for some of the projects depending on what you're going to be doing. The Gates Foundation grants are, are simple if at least initially if it's where you're applying. It's just like a one-page process to see if they actually like what you're doing and uh, they have a lot of interest in low-middle income countries. As far as the sources of your publications, uh, could you speak a little bit to that and also whether or not you feel that a, a journal of medical missions might be helpful uh, to promote and encourage research from within the Christian health mission community? Part of what we do, I'll link the two questions. Part of what we want to do is make sure that what is learned is applied. That means it has to be done by good science that's credible and believable, and it has to be disseminated. So if something's going to be published, I think it should be published in a way that gets searched so you can find it with a PubMed or Medline index search, uh, which means I think my bias would be that we should probably go for an established, legitimate, peer-reviewed journal. If we're doing softer stuff, sometimes things that we do, softer I mean without less data perhaps, um, sometimes things like Evangelical Missions Quarterly will put things in. That's more going to be about the practice of medicine within a mission setting. Um, do we need a new journal? I love great ideas like that. I will have to simmer along a little bit. But I think in general we should go for the peer-reviewed, credible, established medical literature. We should do studies that are good enough because once they're there, then it's searchable to anybody with the Internet and they can see at least the abstract through a PubMed kind of search engine. So my bias would be to go that way. But using some of the newer online journals get some visibility. And do we need a new journal? That's probably the right answer. Uh, you guys have come up with a vision for the next five years. I love this. Well, I think we had a meeting yesterday, Vinod Shah and, and Ted Lancaster and uh, Nathan Grills. And uh, Center for Study Health and Missions has been working with just that purpose. Um, and to try to, to try to bring two-thirds world, uh, majority world authors into the mix and have an online open source journal so that it is accessible for, as he said, you know, for the developing countries, um, open access but also uh, peer-reviewed and indexed in uh, libraries. So it's coming. That would be fantastic. A lot of the current open access journals <coughs> require a $3,000 payment from the authors to get published. That would be a limiting factor for many. But this is fantastic. Thanks. Any other comments? Yeah, I agree with the peer-reviewed. So if we get a new journal, let, let's make it peer-reviewed and make it PubMed searchable. And uh, I, I personally have made it a practice to look at what I've done and decide which journal based on how it's going to get to the people I want it to get to uh, versus necessarily the, the highest level journal it can get in. But thinking about who, who would benefit from this data and what journals they read and look at. Although I think that's less important now with the ability to get as much online as we can. Another question? Yes. So we know that um, the research is helpful if we incorporate like Christian and non-Christian in our science. 
That's a great question. Uh, I think trying to make sure that you're absolutely ethical and that you stand on on the principles and don't bend, which is kind of easy to do sometimes in places like Nigeria, that you don't bend your ethics. Uh, and uh, that can be really challenging in, in a culture where uh, that may be done uh, more more. Uh, but just standing, standing on your ethics and doing good studies, uh, no IRB or uh, can can make a study ethical if the researcher themselves aren't ethical. And when you do ethical research, then you're able to talk to other people and and share what you're doing broader. I mean, one of the exciting things for me is the interest in the jaundice by some of the young Muslim physicians, pediatricians in Nigeria. My hope is that, although this isn't quite what you're asking, but my hope is that that research will eventually lead to relationships that allow me to share more than just about jaundice. But the research itself is still science. There is research that can be done specifically pertaining to the work of medical missions. You know, we talked about yesterday about uh, assessing um, long-term impact of the health of local people regarding short-term missions. Or, you know, sort of looking at um, sort of the health of, you know, how do you make missions sustainable? Or looking at how we are supporting and sustaining our long-term partners on the field. I mean, that would be research that we really need to ask questions about or asking questions about um, regarding the local uh, health authorities and uh, relationships with our medical mission efforts and things. And that kind of research could, you know, might belong in an evangelical missions quarterly publication, but it is, I mean, it would be sound research. Um, that's pertaining specifically to medical missions, but not necessarily, you know, most of the other research we've been talking about is medical uh, research, which wouldn't necessarily have to have, you know, a Christian label on it, but it's done fully ethically and fully, um, you know, above board and, and sets an example. You raise a big issue that goes for all evangelism versus mercy ministry sorts of things. How valuable is development or humanitarian service if it doesn't come each minute or each day or each year with a label of I'm doing this because I'm a Christian? So that's a tough one. I do realize from research that calcium and vitamin D metabolism is very complicated. So when I was writing a review article about that, instead of saying this is really complicated, I said... Wow, human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're really complex. Those few code words snuck in there led to somebody calling me and talking code words back to me until we realized that we really could be good friends and we're brothers. Uh, And it led to some good research collaborations in a different country um, to learn new things about calcium and vitamin D. I have one friend that didn't like doing short-term missions work because he thought that the medical care was getting in the way of sharing the four spiritual laws with people. We're each going to have to be careful we can make the right balance of 
is it okay to do something loving for somebody if I don't blatantly put a Christian label on it? Um, those are going to be tough issues that relate to research, too. Just to kind of follow up, there's what, what I specifically, I'm full-time down in Mexico, and I'm doing CHE, and I'm, I'm just thinking that there may be, you know, with the Global CHE Network, some, it's, it's more, would be more observational, you know, studies, but in CHE programs, we do mapping of communities and, and looking at some very basic, you know, outcomes that, how communities are changing. And again, it's, it's probably more observational and and not as clinical, but I think that may be some opportunities, you know, because there is that component of evangelism within the, the community context. Yeah, that's a great comment. I'm going to wrap it up because we're about time. And um, but yes, I mean, this we need to continue these kinds of discussions and questions and looking about making you know our kingdom work. Um, excellent work with integrity um, and abiding fully by ethics and and examining our own work and asking the hard questions in our own work. Oh, actually, sorry, just one very quick anecdote, if I could. So if I could just close with just one quick anecdote about the Christian component. So when I arrived at Christian Medical College, I was was expecting, like their website, to have that everybody was going to be on fire Christians. So I, I met Nihal, the one on the right. I had Bible verses on his walls and his, his desk. And I said, Nihal, this is so wonderful. You've all these Bible verses. He was like, yeah, whatever. They do that here. That's sort of the culture. Just because we're called Christians doesn't mean we're really into it. We're just cultural Christians and so on. So I was very disappointed. But anyway, over time, it's been very intriguing. When we went, the day that we went to the, the, um, the, to advocate at Washington, we were tra- traveling along the metro in, in Washington. Nihal was was getting Bible verses every day on his cell phone. So I said, I because re- I was reading the Psalms. I said, Is it okay with you if we read the Psalms on the way in? And he said, Oh, look, look here, got Bible verses on my phone. I said, How long have you been doing this for? Anyway, so he'd been getting into this in the meantime. And then another day, I got an email from him out of the blue saying, God has really been working in my life these last six months. And, and um, I've been asked to preach a sermon at chapel. Could you please look it over for me and see what you think? So, so it's been very intriguing uh, to say that, yes, we've been doing the research collaboration, but other things have been taking place as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tom Hart Who is that? Thank you, Phil, Tina, and Meredith for sharing. Um, Jessica? Yeah, Jessica has evaluation forms. Um, yes, please uh, fill those out. Thank you for your attention.